0: Greetings, welcome to Witnesses of the King, Witnesses of the King. We're going through an overview of the book of Acts, and as we go through the book of Acts, we're seeing the many things that God is doing to establish and build his church. And I say what he is doing because he continues to do it to this day in much the same fashion. Here in Acts chapter 26, we're going to see this same thing today. We're uh, joining the Apostle Paul in Caesarea Maritima, which is on the coast of Israel, a uh, couple days' journey from Jerusalem, where he was first falsely accused of doing some things, and then a uh, murderous plot was revealed against him. He was moved to Caesarea Maritima for his safety, and since then has suffered the injustice of of the non-action of the governing authorities, where he is still awaiting a fair trial, uh, and even for that matter, just charges. So we join the Apostle Paul. Here in Acts 26, and what we want to see is a continuation of what the Lord had said from the very beginning. The, the simple fact that the Lord said in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, to his servant Ananias, who was going to be the first to minister to Paul uh, after his conversion, and he told Ananias uh, that, the, that Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and all the children of Israel. And so this statement is being fulfilled, as we see, quite literally, in his life, as he stands here this day before King Agrippa and before the governor of Judea, Portius Festus. And this is Agrippa the second, the king of Judea, and he is of the line of Herod. And so this is uh, an important thing. Tune in for the last sermon if you want to hear some details about who this man was and what he was like. But there's also accompanying them this day in the court of Portius Festus is going to be some of the military leaders and some of the influential leaders from the city and many other people, including servants and attendants of those that are attending. And so Paul says, indeed, he stands there before great and small. Paul's problem is basically this. Having been uh, falsely accused, he is waiting there for a fair kind of trial. Festus has heard the accusations from the Jews. He has heard some of Paul's defense. And now he pulls King Agrippa in uh, for advice since Agrippa was visiting with his sister Bernice. And he is going to consult him on this matter because King Agrippa was very well knowledgeable in the ways of the Jews and had kept up on uh, the church and, and other things as it began to grow. So he was acquainted with some of what the subject matter is. So as we pick it up here, we remember what Claudius Lysias, the tribune from Jerusalem, said in his letter uh, as he was first sent down to Felix, who was in Caesarea. Uh, he said this about Paul. He says, I find that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Well, keep that in mind and keep in mind his important audience, his diverse audience that he speaks to today as we begin Acts chapter 26 and we read uh, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 32. Here's what it says. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have my permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, was not disobedient to the vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God, that not only you, but all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free, if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, it's fitting that we start with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much this day for this account of your servant Paul. We thank you for all that you did through it and continue to do through this account to this very day. Lord, may we, from the scriptures, learn many things, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear what you have for us here this day in your word. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have a... an account of a very interesting situation. I don't know if you considered this or not, but I think what Festus had in mind in having King Agrippa consult on the issue is that King Agrippa might, uh, with his knowledge of the Jews, his knowledge of the things concerning Christianity, would interrogate Paul, ask him some questions to maybe trip him up in himself and, and have him to admit to something that he had done wrong. But all Agrippa does is give an open-ended invitation for Paul just to speak. And we saw there in verse 2, or verse 1, he says, you have permission to speak for yourself. And he lets Paul go on quite a long while. And it's only when Festus interrupts him that things kind of draw to a close. So this is a, I hope you see, this is a powerfully interesting passage of scripture because Paul has given this incredible opportunity to share the gospel and share it he does. He gives a testimony and it's a very simple testimony in three parts. A testimony that we should all know about our own walk with Christ this day. A testimony that's something we should be able to appeal to and it's simply this. Who he was, what Jesus did, and then who he became after. Because that's what happens in salvation. Jesus interrupts our lives and he changes us from one thing into another. And this is the precise testimony we see from our servant Paul. So let's take a look here at who Paul was. And we'll begin with that because this is a good concise way to think of it. Who Paul was. First of all, we're going to find that mostly in verses 4 through 12. If we take a look there what it says, we saw that he had a reputation from his youth, of a particular manner of life. A manner of life consistent with being a faithful and zealous Jew of the strictest sect of their, of their religion, and that would be a Pharisee. And so he appeals to this to say, this is who I was before, and I was one of them, not only one of them, but I was one of their leaders in my zeal and in this rage against the Christian faith. Uh, which it came to be known as later. So he actually was so zealous, he felt he should oppose the Christian movement. He imprisoned some of them. He approved of their murders. He tried to even persuade them uh, or to pursue them in other cities. And it says in verse 11 that he punished them, tried to make them blaspheme. And he describes his actions with raging fury. What it means to have punished them in the synagogues means that this would include beatings and these would be severe beatings and that he would use the term raging fury. This means that Paul's association with the persecution of the church left blood on his hands at times probably quite literally. There would be beatings, there would be blood, there would be scars, there would be tears and this is the man who he was. Now, that might sound extreme, but I want us to think of these things in context. Paul was doing what was popular and what was commendable in his own context, that is among his own peers. it was He was fitting in with the crowd, so to speak, the crowd of the chief priests, the Pharisees, the people who had had Jesus crucified. He was fitting in with this crowd. And with the elites of Judaism. And he was trying to do what was right from his own perspective. But nevertheless, Paul will appeal to this in his testimony that this is how bad I was. And later he will appeal to himself as the chief of sinners because of these things. So that's who Paul was. But what did Jesus do here? Well, starting in verse 12, we have the account of Jesus interrupting his journey to Damascus. And a light shone from heaven, verse 13, brighter than the sun. And this uh, has led many people to believe that the form in which Jesus appeared to him is the same form that the apostles saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was glorified in their sight and shone brightly. Or some say, no, it's like that, but it's also like Revelation chapter 1 when the apostle John is receiving the revelation uh, that is contained therein. And Jesus appeared to him and is described in detail by John, but again, bright and shining as the sun. Either way, Jesus interrupts Paul's life and then he speaks to him in Hebrew, which would be a testimony to Paul personally. Most of them spoke Greek or Aramaic throughout most of their day, but in the Uh, religious circles and in the synagogues, you would hear some Hebrew being spoken. And Paul, a student of the scriptures, which were primarily in Hebrew, but also in Greek at that time, uh, he would be well familiar and fluent in this language with his education. And he says to him, why are you persecuting me? And this is interesting and might be perplexing to some of you because it was actually the church that Paul was persecuting Not Jesus himself. But if you understand, the New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ, which means this would be his own flesh and blood. It is right to say that the church is the physical body of Jesus Christ here in the world. And no less than that, the church is also called the bride of Christ. And in Jewish thinking, the two became one when it says a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife there in Genesis chapter 2, the idea is that this would be a permanent fixing, that the two would become one. And Jesus said, whatever God joins, let no man separate. And so indeed, he saw the bride, his church, as his very own body, and persecution of that church is persecution of Jesus. This is why the church doesn't take revenge. This is why the church doesn't seek out those uh, who persecute it so that we can, can get one over on them too, because we know that they have attacked the church of Jesus Christ. And there's no one more fearful than Jesus that they can face for the issue. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And so the church leaves that up to the Lord to deal with. Somebody persecutes their church, we're to turn the other cheek. We're to walk away. Now, we're to demand our rights as Paul does when there are legal rights and things being infringed upon. We're to avail ourselves of the services of the governing authorities wherever we are if we can appeal to them. But if there is no appeal there and it's the governing authorities themselves that do it, well, then our only thing to do is to leave that revenge to the person of Jesus Christ. He will repay, and his repayment would be far worse than anything we could ever do. But nevertheless, he says, why do you persecute me? And then he gives him an illustration here that's very interesting. He says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The reference there is to an ox. And oxen, of course, would pull a cart, so they'd be put upon yokes, and they would be encouraged with a whip until they were so trained as to respond to verbal commands, but they could be very stubborn animals, even when trained. And sometimes when they would be whipped or encouraged to start or whatever, they would kick out at that which was persecuting them. And they would kick backwards because that's where the driver is. Well, they would kick backwards and they would tear up the cart and everything. And uh, so the, the people that had ox understood, okay, we can't have this. And they would affix a great plank there with spikes in it, angled, so that when the ox kicked uh, backwards in refusing to move forward, that they would kick into these spikes, causing them great pain, and of course training them not to do that anymore, but rather encouraging them all the more to go forward. And this is what Jesus is referring to. Paul I'm trying to steer you, I'm trying to drive you in a particular direction, but you're fighting against me. You're kicking against the goads. And when you read the Old Testament, you get the very real impression that this was the problem with the nation Israel. They were continually kicking against the goads. He was constantly having to correct them with discipline, as per the terms of their covenant with God, But nevertheless, a constant labor of trying to get them steered in the right direction. And so this is a saying to Paul, but it ought to speak to us as well. Are we kicking against the goads when it comes to following the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to his authority? Remember, Jesus is Lord. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. And he has every right to dictate everything in our lives. Because he is the one who bled and died for our sins. And so indeed, Paul is accused by Jesus of kicking against the goads. This is what Jesus does. He intervenes in people's lives. He intervened in a very dramatic way with Paul. I believe it to be a unique way. I've not met any Christian who has the testimony that I visibly saw the, the light of Christ. And he, you know, blinded me uh, and just interrupted my life in such a profound way. But the transformation that happens is no less profound. But this is what Jesus does. Look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 22. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. So he has all authority. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What that means is that Jesus initiates salvation with people. He chooses to reveal the Father to people. And by revealing the Father, reveals himself. And so he is the initiator of salvation. Now more is going on in the account of Paul here than might be readily apparent. See, we're told that the Father draws people to Christ and when they are saved, they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that is, born again, see John chapter 3, on the issue, that the Holy Spirit convicts of sins, and that this, then, exposes our guilt before God. So Jesus confronts Paul about his sin, but inwardly, too, the Holy Spirit would be working to convict Paul's heart of these things, and Paul is made new. Somewhere in their na- in that narrative, Paul is given a heart of flesh in place of his heart of stone. Paul is moved from death to life, to use the biblical words. Paul was not merely confronted with his error, but Paul was changed. Now, Paul, you'll notice, doesn't explicitly say that I was changed that day. Paul doesn't say, he only relates what Jesus says to him, and then Paul relates this. He says, um, let me find it here for you. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So Paul doesn't have to say, oh yeah, and an inward change happened to me, or I was convicted of my sins, or I felt this way, or I felt that. Paul doesn't relate his feelings. The only reason we get an impression in this passage of great drama and emotion is simply by his narration. Paul never actually says how he felt, but he shows it by what he did. He was obedient to the vision, and he says, not only was I obedient, but he immediately starts doing things, Um, and this is what Paul became. He repented of his behavior. He did a 180 degree turn. He started preaching in Damascus right away. That was the city where he was healed of his blindness by Ananias three days after his confrontation with the Lord Jesus. And he immediately was baptized and immediately began to exercise the giftedness God gave him to teach and began to teach the people there in Damascus. Then he returned to Jerusalem, to home, where the leaders were, where the people were who sent him, where the people were who crucified Jesus. And he goes there and bold and courageous to preach the word of God. Eventually, the church sends him away uh, and he ends up going to Antioch of Syria for his own safety because they understood that this change that Paul went through is going to bring violence, is going to be a problem with the jews and so they eventually send him away but this is just an illustration of how dramatic the change was and look what he says in verse 22 to this day i've had the help that comes from god see in the context of the jews trying to kill him well they've obviously failed he's still standing there that day he said for uh to this day i've had the help that comes from god and it's evident because he's lived this long even by this point Paul had been stoned and left for dead outside of a city, and he got up and walked back into that city. He had received the 40 stripes minus one sentence five times. He recounts this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and many other sufferings and difficulty, and coming up in his life, even shipwreck for the sake of the gospel. Yet he survives it all. How? He credits it to God. He is what he is by the grace of God, he will say in one of his letters. So this is Paul, and this is how he operates. He gives a credit for his, trans, uh, for his change and his, tra- his own transfiguration to the Lord Jesus. He gives credit for the ongoing support to the Holy Spirit, the power of God in him and through him to do what he has done. His life radically changed. When Jesus Christ intervened. Now, Paul's account, we must admit, is truly unique in many ways. He even remarks that he's unique among the apostles, calling himself untimely born in 1 Corinthians 15, but the principles found in looking at his conversion are universal to all believers. In many ways, Paul's testimony is our own testimony. He described who he was. He described what Jesus did. He described what he has become. And indeed, we should be able to say the same. We should be able to say who we were, what Jesus has done, and who we are becoming. Our testimony is simply this. First of all, who were we? We were enemies of God. Now, Paul was obviously an enemy of God, but the scriptures tell us that we are all enemies of God. We find ourselves when the Lord comes to our life in the same position as Paul. Now, maybe we aren't hunting his people down and and trying to get them to blaspheme and beating them and approving of their murders, but every time we spread false information about who God is, anytime we misrepresent God simply by our daily living, anytime we misrepresent his law by our sin, anytime we shy away from the truth, and fail to represent the perfect truth to others, we are as good as persecuting Jesus himself. Now, some may object to my treatment of this, and they might say, "Oh, wait a minute, I've been neutral on the religion issue. I've always tried to remain uh, neutral and and stay aside and not get involved and not express my opinions. But look what this says here in Romans chapter one it says His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that are made. Okay, But what's wrong with this? Well, what's wrong with this is very simple here. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In other words, those who would claim to be ignorant of God would say, I'm not, I'm not holding down the truth. But the Bible says, no, 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 you actually are. By denying the truth, by ignoring God, we're actually railing against the truth. Uh, look what James says here in James chapter 4. James makes it clear that there are no neutral parties. He says this to his people as he writes them. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know? That friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a really powerful statement, and he's not leaving room there for us to be neutral. We are either a friend or an enemy of God. Jesus said the same thing. In all the synoptic gospels, you find the saying, whoever is not with me is against me whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there's no room for neutrality here. Jesus says you're for him or against him. You're gathering or you're scattering. And this is a very important part of our testimony. So matter how good and how, how seemingly good your life is before Christ, you may have grown up in church. You may not have had an occasion to fall into all kinds of things that the world considers sinful. But know this that the Bible sees us as enemies of God, that we are partaking in the worldly systems, we're following the ways of the world, which are really the ways of Satan. Did you notice how Paul talk, described being delivered from the power of Satan to the power of God? So if you're follow, not following Jesus Christ, you're merely only doing what seems right according to your own peers, according to your own crowd, according to your own understanding of things, which is then no different from what Paul was doing when he was persecuting the church. Paul, at least, had a foundation for his beliefs, and that was the Old Testament. But he and the other leadership, they misunderstood it, and they were misapplying it and its teachings. Now, many other people have no foundation whatsoever, Nowadays, many people would claim science as their foundation. Oh, facts are my truth. And, but the problem is that science is not a thing. Science is a process. And that process is always changing, always arriving at different conclusions, always discovering and retesting its, its own assumptions, if it's honest science, and therefore presents us with nothing but shifting sands upon which to build. The same is true of societies and morality. The moralities of the society you live in are not the exact same morals that they had 50 or 100 years ago. They're continuing to shift and to change. People do what feels right and what they seem to get away with without much persecution from their fellow man. This is a highly unstable situation and it is not, according to the Bible, neutral, because the entire world is under the influence of the evil one. So who were we? We were enemies of God. But what Jesus does in his goodness and in his grace is revelation to us. Jesus calls us as a shepherd calls his sheep. Look at this in John chapter 10, what it says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That they hear his voice again appeals to the idea there is an intervention of Jesus first. And the sheep hear his voice and they respond and they go. It is his initiative. It is his call. And he reveals himself and the Father. And as the initiator of our salvation, uh, he is no less the one who starts the ball rolling as he did with Paul on the road to Damascus. Salvation is entirely of God and is tired, entirely initiated by God. Now, many people will say, well, Paul really missed the mark here because he states later in his letters, it's very clear that he is saved by grace through faith. And indeed, that is true, and that's what the Bible teaches. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, which faith is that word for belief, belief but it's really an enduring trust okay, this trust in Jesus Christ, and that's what brings salvation. Why doesn't Paul say that? Well, he did, (laughs) because it's evident from his testimony of what he used to be and what he became. What had to come in between was a change in his beliefs. What had to come in between was faith, because true faith always results in works, But um, these things must be revealed to us by the Spirit of God. So Jesus Christ initiates these things and the Spirit intervenes to give us understanding. See 1 Corinthians chapter 2 on the issue. And what you'll find is this about the Word of God and about the way of salvation. We impart this, that is the teachings of Christ, in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, listen to what it says about the natural person. And when Paul talks in his letters about the natural person, he's talking about the person without the aid of the Spirit of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Without the intervention of the Holy Spirit of God, we cannot understand, nor can we believe. So this is what Jesus does. He intervenes with us, whether it is through uh, someone inviting us to a Bible study or to church, whether it is through the reading of the Word of God, he intervenes in our lives and he sends the Holy Spirit. If you have come to true, true saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has worked this in you. And has worked with you. This is what Jesus does when he calls his sheep. And when he calls them to himself. And he gives them eternal life. Now uh, we talked about what Jesus has done. Now finally what is it that we become? Who do we become? Well our right and proper response to true faith in Jesus Christ. Is repentance and good works. And this is a core belief of the gospel we see it there in verse 20 when Paul talks about what it was he was preaching. He declared in Damascus, so this is right at the very beginning of his ministry, he never changed from this. He declared to those in Damascus then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So not only should there be a repentance, but if that's true repentance, of, that is a response to true faith, then it's going to result in works. It's going to result in deeds that are consistent with their repentance. And this is what was the earliest teaching of Jesus. Look at Mark chapter 1 verse 15. His early teaching is summarized this way. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So repentance is there along with the believe, and that's the same word as faith, it's just the verb form of faith. Well, we heard this also from, uh, from John the Baptist, who was Jesus' predecessor, and this was his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached repentance, and look what he says to the leaders when they come meet him. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, there ought to be works. There ought to be a follow-up to this repentance. If you're going to come down here and hear me preach and watch me and then get in that water and be baptized, when you walk away from here, there had better be some good works that align with repentance that you have proclaimed here publicly. Now, Paul's repentance Although he didn't say that he repented, it's implicit in the fact that Paul did a 180. He was persecuting the church, then he was building the church. A story in the scriptures tells us much more than words very often. And that's why the Bible uses so many narrative accounts of real world people interacting with God because it teaches us more than if these things were just plainly stated. The Bible shows us rather than just telling us. He went from persecuting to preaching, from murdering to ministering. Now what about grace and faith as Paul preached? Well, there cannot be genuine repentance without any kind of faith. And he was shown grace and he repents with obedience. Real faith or belief results in works. Any gospel that teaches you you are saved by your good works is a false gospel. You hear that? Any gospel that teaches you that you are saved by your good works is a false gospel. Sorry, I lost it over here on the side here. But we are saved by grace through faith. But listen to how he completes the thought in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, um, "For By grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And a lot of people quote that verse and they will stop right there. But it goes on. It says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. So salvation's entirely of God. So God gets all the credit. We can't boast over our salvation. But look what it says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now watch as I highlight here. There's a play on words at work here. Uh, Not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship. That is what he has worked created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so you see the way it highlights in here the real position of works. Paul uses a reference to the idea of works three times in this verse so that we can see the clear relationship. It's that the works don't save us, but the works follow those who have been worked on by God. So any gospel teaches you that you're saved by good works is a false gospel and should be rejected. Now, as you see by this verse, any gospel that does not teach that good works are expected of those who have believed and repented, is a false gospel. In other words, any gospel that would say, oh, yeah, once you're saved, you don't need to worry about you know doing anything good anymore. Your salvation is sure, and it's done, and it's accomplished. And I say this to you, that if you were baptized, and you uh, had some association with the gospel or whatever, and you've walked away from the church, you have presently, No reason to believe that you're saved, because it says right here very plainly in the book of Ephesians, we were created in Christ Jesus for good, for good works. And this is to be done in the context of the people of God. He has gifted each and every one of his people to serve alongside his people in the building of the kingdom. And read the first three chapters and first four chapters of the book of Ephesians and you'll see it crystal clear that we were meant to be in this together and if you're not connected to the people of God it is a cause for very great concern. So those are two things to look out for. People that say that you're saved by your works and people that say that you don't need works after you've been saved. The result of true faith is good works. So much so that this is how Jesus told us to be on the lookout for false prophets. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the deceased tree bears bad fruit. Healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Look at the beauty of the gospel. And as we explain our testimony to people, we can take these same simple steps to describe who we were, to describe what Jesus has done, and describe who we have become. The reconciliation between God and his enemies. Paul went from a persecutor to a servant when Christ intervened. From problem to the solution when Christ intervened. And this is the offer extended to all of us this day by the word of God is this, be reconciled to God. And not only will we have a change in our relationship to God, We'll go from being a convict to a child of God, from an enemy to a friend, from death to life, from the losing team to the winning team. So it's not only a change in relationship to God, but there's also a change in our vocation from serving ourselves and serving this world and its prince to serving Jesus Christ. And then to be like Paul and enter into the solution with others and for others. To become part of a redeemed people, redeeming people to the kingdom of Christ. Redeeming people to escape the flames of an everlasting torment and live the life intended, the life enjoying the Savior, both now, in the joy of his service, and forever, in the joy of his presence. See, Paul was in chains, and Paul was in prison, but Paul speaks some of the loftiest passages of hope found in the Bible. As you read through his letters, you find someone whose eyes are on a prize that is far beyond anything this world could take from us. He describes our present sufferings as not worthy to be compared to the glory to be revealed in us. And this is the hope of the gospel a joy that transcends our circumstances, and a hope that transcends all of time. This is an expectation of the rolling back of the clouds and the coming of Christ to reward and to punish. And that is our hope in Christ. And so we leave it to him, for it is all from him, and it is all to him, it is all by him. Let's indeed pray together. Father God, we praise you for your great work in Jesus Christ. We praise you, Lord, for making yourself known, for ministering to us this day, that indeed we might have the benefit of these great words. Lord, I pray for each and every person listening that they really consider and develop their testimony to be able to share it with others, to understand who they were and what you've done and who they've become. And Lord, if any are listening that have not gone through that transition, I pray that you would enter into their lives, that you would grant them the faith to repent of their deeds and to turn from the way they do things and turn to a relationship with you and with your church. Lord, I pray that you would just work mightily through the Word of God this day. And Lord, as we part, I pray that you'll give us all opportunity this very day and this all this week to reach out and be a benefit to somebody by proclaiming our testimony and the truth to them. We thank you, Lord, for showing us and not just telling us. We thank you for working in us and not just toward us. We thank you, Lord, for all your great power and might that expresses itself in the gospel, the gospel to which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And we praise you, Lord, indeed. May you be known in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for being a part of this today, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And I hope that you have the opportunity to contact us, either just with encouragement or questions, or if you're in need of a church in your local area, we can help refer you to one that believes the Bible, that searches the scriptures for the truth. And so please feel free to contact us for any reason at whitesrunbaptist@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We review those ourselves And uh, I will read them all personally, and I will respond to you and encourage you. So thank you for joining us, and may God bless you.